Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlock from the World Cup in Qatar. I'm Rob Harris from Sky News, also here in Doha, Tarek Panja from the New York Times, and back in England, Martin Ziegler from the Times. Now, particularly for the world of media, it's been a tragic sort of period for the last few days, mourning the death of Grant Wall, the esteemed US sports journalist. Tarek, you were at the game, the Argentina-Netherlands game, when he collapsed. What was it like there, and what are your memories? Yes, really tragic, just to send our sympathies to Grant's friends, his family, his wife and um, his colleagues. It was, um, it was really shocking, really. It was um, just after the 90 minutes had finished, the extra time had started and there was a commotion and to call everyone was sort of bewildered, really, calling for uh, the medical aid, which I think, to be fair, arrived as, as quickly as possible. And, um, and in very difficult circumstances, the medics tried to revive Grant and unfortunately were not able to. It's, it's still quite hard to process something like that happening, if I'm honest. And, you know, in terms of who he was, as far as American football or soccer is concerned, Grant's role in growing interest in the sport is it's just has been phenomenal over over the decades he's been working so um yeah the american football world has lost a really big figure a giant figure in its in its modern history yeah it's absolutely um shocking tragic news you know we we all knew grant um he i, I suppose first came into the consciousness but he, he decided he, he was going to run for the fifa presidency back in 2011 um and it, he was working for Sports Illustrated at the time. It was a it was a, a really sort of well conceived idea. I mean, it, it, he couldn't get the backing of any of the um, countries to, to nominate him, but it, it certainly put the the idea of some sort of FIFA's need for democracy, open democracy, uh, it, up on the, in, in the in the limelight. And from then, he you know he moved on. He as you say, he was probably the the, the key guy in getting. A, American soccer, um, both internationally, um, given some exposure internationally in the media, and also reporting on American soccer issues more generally. So, yeah, a, a, a great journalist and very, very sad news. A pioneering American soccer journalist in terms of his books. He had the Beckham experiment, which documented David Beckham's arrival at the LA Galaxy and the impact. He had also so many cover stories in Sports Illustrated as well and an avid viewer of football, not only in Europe, but also in the United States. Men's and women's game was also on Fox in the US for a number of years broadcasting and really the dominant figure in US soccer broadcasting and journalism, helping to project soccer around the world and domestically too. It must be tough for you there, Tarek. Um, absolutely, and everybody who, who was there in person, and um, we'll, we'll just we will remember him, I'm sure. Yeah, FIFA did put a tribute to him at the England France World Cup quarter final. A pitch for him was in the press box, and FIFA officials were there at the hospital in the early hours of Saturday morning after the Friday night game to um, to check on him. Yeah, uh, Rob, the, um, the the quarterfinals that took place the day after Grant's death or, or the same day, because we found out the news, tragic news in the morning. Um, as you said, they, the tributes at, at both games, Morocco 
against Portugal um, and, and France, England. It was um, a big screen tribute at the, um, the game I was at, Morocco, uh, against Portugal. And as you said, there was um, flowers and Grant's place was kept at the Albate Stadium at, uh, for France versus England. But yeah, just, just very shocking. And it's strange, the tournament, obviously having that happen and the World Cup, you just sort of roll on, don't you? Yeah, and obviously the World Cup can be a quite gruelling experience for journalists, something that perhaps fans around the world might struggle to comprehend. Obviously, many would sort of like to be at this World Cup and they aren't, but still journalistically, four or five weeks, you're actually here on the ground, constantly going to games or trying to find news. Yeah, it's a, it can be pretty gruelling. Um, you know, we, we've we lost colleagues of ours at previous World Cups um, in 2010, a, a colleague of ours, from the Associated Press, <clears throat> suffered a heart attack and died in, in South Africa during the tournament. So, it's um, it is it's 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 full on, and um, for for everybody out there, it, if there's other illnesses around, I'm sure that puts stresses on people's health systems. Yeah, just uh, was recalling that in 2010, it was uh, Bob Millward from the Associated Press, and again, I remember having lunch with him that that day. It was um the semi-final in Cape Town uh, between Holland and Uruguay. There was another AP journalist there. I think it was Raf Kasset. We were having lunch before the game. And um, you find the news when you head back to Johannesburg the next day. And it's so sudden, so shocking uh, when, when these things happen. And just a word for the situation here in Qatar more broadly. Um, I don't know about you, Rob, but the timings, the, the days just are so long. For example, we've got these 10 p.m. kickoffs um, particularly, let's not forget this was the first full game a day tournament as well in the group stage, and um, it is—it's just the day is really extended. You tend to go to bed around three or four a.m. after that ten p.m. game, and um, and there's been a lot of illness as well through the press, through the press pack. Um, think about British journalists, U.S. journalists, global journalists are coughing and spluttering. I haven't done very well at this particular World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's why even on these recordings, we've not perhaps been as regular as we sort of try to watch for health and rest too. And you think about the staff working at this World Cup as well. If you've got these 10 o'clock games, they go into extra time and penalties as well. It's the staff at the stadiums. They need to get back, particularly from somewhere like Arbeit, which is the city of Alhor in the desert, about 45 minutes drive north of Doha. So everyone's got to get back from their working, stewards, staff as well, and be sort of rested up for the next day. So it's, you know, something to consider. Well, obviously, they talk heavily about the four games a day and the compact World Cup, but it is still a pretty gruelling experience. Our condolences to Grant Wall's family, particularly his wife, Celine Gounder, at this incredibly difficult and tragic time and there has been another death at this world cup as well a qatari photographer working for um, al Qas tv khalid al mislam he died on saturday as well that's uh, according to the, the gulf times and incredibly um, tragic circumstances there with another journalist dying in this world cup also having the death of a uh, worker who died at the Saudi Arabia hotel, there was an accident there, something that's been investigated, what happened when the guard reportedly from the Philippines fell off a ramp. We've yet to have the full details of that investigation. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, um, all these things are very, very um, sad and tragic. And probably the defining image we'll take of, of Grant from this is, is him when he turned up at a match, in his first match he went to wearing a rainbow T-shirt um, just to show what happened. And actually he was sort of briefly detained and it actually became quite a, a cool celebrity and a, a really sort of powerful thing for him to have done. So as we do obviously focus on this World Cup in the final few days, still reflecting on Grant, the wearing of that rainbow t-shirt still actually yet to hear from fifa on that or many things um yeah rob it's going to be one of the uh motifs for me of this tournament i remember the saudi arabian fans do you remember um after uh they beat argentina and Lionel messi their song was where's messi they kept going around doha looking for messi having having beaten argentina 2-1 and i think for the press it might be where's fifa where's gianni and pantino you know we're, we are almost at the end of the world cup and um, as you said, it's hard to get a comment for sometimes even the most benign issues when you raise them on the record. Um, and as far as Gianni Infantino is concerned, we've had, not, we've had him do that 57-minute monologue at the start of the tournament. And I don't think he's done another media appearance since then. He's done something in-house. I haven't been able to ask him anything unless, unless you know different. I mean, that was the thing. He did an in-house interview calling it the best group stage ever, but so good they had to film their own interview, FIFA. No independent journalist conducted it. Yeah, you know, we talked about it this last week, didn't we, about this, the, the sort of the wall of silence. And it's, it's clearly a, a deliberate tactic um, because if you, if you don't answer questions, then you, you don't sort of, maybe the argument is you don't fuel a story. And if it's a, a story which doesn't... Um, project positively on FIFA or the Qatar organisers, then they'll be even less willing to, to provide that sort of fuel. So it, it, it it's a shame and it's, I, I you know, certainly from a media point of view, think it's pretty, I'm not convinced that's the right approach at all. Um, the IOC, for all their faults, have daily briefings, you know, will, will respond to questions during the Olympics. All the Olympic organising committees the same they'll have daily briefings so i just um I'm, I'm not i'm not sure this has been the right approach obviously there's been a focus on stadiums now they haven't looked empty in any way compared to say the 2019 world athletics championships here but terry you have raised some doubts over the sparsity of some of the crowds who's in the crowds who's filling those crowds when perhaps there are empty seats yeah it's it's been a a, a game of trying to find out what the hell's actually going on here because um, you, you'd go to some matches, even some really massive games, and um, half an hour before kickoff, these stadiums will be half empty or half full, depending on, on how you look at life. Um, ten minutes before, still quite empty. Kickoff, still empty. And then suddenly, you, you look up from whatever you were doing, if you were typing on your, you know, typing a match report or something, 15 minutes into the game, and then a lot of seats seem to be taken. Uh, you know, I've seen the fact that doors have been opened for ticketless fans at the start of the tournament. Um, but again, it's something no one wants to talk about. Um, I think it's great to fill, fill the seats up. But again, I suppose that you have to separate that with, you know, people have spent so much money to get here and their own money to buy tickets. That it just, it's just some clarity on this. And the other thing, um, and this is one of the stories of the tournament, of course, Morocco going to the semi-final of the World Cup, which is a remarkable feat for 
uh, for Morocco, first for African football, the first Arab nation, the first Arab World Cup, and they've been really heavily supported. There's tens of thousands of Moroccans in Doha. So at that Portugal game, the fact that the stadium was half empty at best with a kickoff uh, was really confusing. And then you, then you get the reports from outside and there's thousands of fans who have been locked out, um, rings of steel preventing them from getting in. Um, it must be really frustrating. The security plan, I felt, was being stretched to the very, very limit on that day and whenever Morocco plays. One thing I've, other thing that I've noticed, which would be quite good to get some sort of response on, is the fact that there seems to be a sort of crackdown on, you know, rainbow armbands, hats, whatever banners. Yet there's been a sort of fairly liberal approach to when people want to to wave the Palestinian flag around. Um, it'd be interesting if they, if the organisers or the Qatari government or FIFA have basically given the sort of cl- turning a blind eye to that, but not to the rainbow flags. Palestine is a FIFA member, unlike, say, a member of the UN, are they, as a country? So it is a flag of a FIFA country. Generally, I think we see in Europe sometimes, UEFA cases might be there's only charges against nations when the Palestinian flag might be viewed, being used in a provocative sense against certain teams or countries. Whereas here, obviously, it's a symbol, actually, of the Arab world. It's been adopted by many fans out here and something we get onto in a moment is the story i did about the plan that existed for no room for islamophobia armbands which featured a palestinian headscarf design on them yeah to be, to be honest it's been a very obvious this is a been a, a massive platform the world cup for the for the arab world to push its causes and mainly this cause of of um of palestine and and it's not just the flag actually the, yes the flag is everywhere but it's also you know the lettering on it you've seen free palestine written on these giant banners at the stadiums and you could you know assume that is a, a political gesture under and the fifa's terminology and, and 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 that's been that's been something i think the local organizers have been very happy with um and it's not just the um rainbow flag martin don't forget the iranians were, were barred from bringing any insignia into stadiums that might upset the iranian regime back in tehran you know the old flag for example t-shirts they were all um, they were all asked to surrender those entering stadiums in the group stages. Yeah, it does, it does seem like one rule for for one uh, and one rule for our, our friends and one rule for people who aren't, uh, that's for sure. So tell us more about this armband, Rob, the story that you, you uncovered. Yes, this was something that I'd heard about and then managed to get hold of an actual design for this no place for Islamophobia armband. It was something Qatar officials in Qatar had discussed, conceived, and then raised with other other Muslim-majority countries like Saudi Arabia and Morocco. They did indicate, my source, that it had been proposed to FIFA and the fact FIFA had rejected it some weeks ago before the uh, the rejection publicly of the rainbow armbands, the one love armbands. FIFA denied knowledge of them, but obviously my story has been out there and there's been no public denial at all of the story as the as it has gone round, and obviously we published on Sky the actual image of this no place for Islamophobia armband because they saw this World Cup as a potential platform to highlight the, the issue with Islamophobia. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, I mean that's that's. I guess once they said that they weren't going to have the, the the one love armband, and they, there's no way they could use that. But it is really interesting. Yeah, and Rob, again, it seems to be a, um, you know, I don't want to say, but this tit-for-tat thing, that was probably this idea, the genesis of that is 
after the One Love campaign was launched in September. And then what we saw here on the ground was the German interior minister wore the One Love armband. And then the next day we see all the Palestinian um, cause armbands as well in, in, in the stadium. We've seen them ever since. It just seems if they do that, we'll do this. If they do that, we'll do this. It just seems to be a, um, a little bit of a, a game or ratcheting up one side against the other. It's, it's a bit strange, I guess. For your experiences out in, in Qatar, obviously it's a sort of unique World Cup place because it's all in such um, close proximity. It's going to be very, very different in four years' time, 2026, USA, Canada, Mexico, 48 teams, and um, we, exactly what it's going to look like, you know, something we've talked about before. But it does look, the, the, the plan as, as it stands is for 16 groups of three countries. Um, but Arsene Wenger, the FIFA's head of global football development, has confirmed that's going to be reviewed next year. And it is looking more like 12 groups of four, 104 matches in total. Um, it's going to take at least 35 days, which is five longer than this this tournament. What do you think? It's a lot of games, particularly in the early stages. Then when you get to, say, the quarterfinal onwards, suddenly days without games, yet a huge top-loaded number of games, which creates more television opportunities around the world because there are more countries involved. But... I suppose there's only a matter of football that one fan could watch. I um, interviewed Alex Phillips about this. Alex uh, used to be the the um, head of of the UEFA's Asia Europe affairs. Um, now as an independent consultant, working at the moment for FIFA on development projects. He was really interested in this. I mean, he says that the you know whatever whichever way you look at it, forty eight teams is, is going to mean a a, a tournament that's worse than it is now because 32 is you know is is such a good number for a tournament um and it also means it's going to be messier and but are there are there benefits for football development around the world um and he's not so sure that there are because he thinks a lot of countries the poorer countries they basically all the money they get from fifa is the majority of it is aimed at qualifying for the World Cup. So, you know, you get a sort of has-been European coach. You spend heavily on, on them. Um, they bring in their coaching staff, you know, give contracts to their mates. And it's um, actually at the expense of proper football development in those countries. So I thought that, I think that was a, an interesting point. This was a key plan of Gianni Fantino when he was elected. He talks in the campaign about maybe expanding to 40 teams. Then after winning the election in February 2016, realised actually the maths didn't quite work with 40 teams. He ordered a consultation study. The study showed that actually the optimum sporting format was 32 teams that would produce the best World Cup. And yet he still went ahead with gaining the approval of the FIFA membership to expand to 48 teams. Yeah, I, it, I don't get this beyond the fact of the FIFA politics, the fact this guy needs to be elected every four years. And if it's not him, someone else... You just give away more and more things to the people who count, which isn't, I guess, clubs or fans or any other stakeholder in the world, but 211 FAs. And this this is the giveaway, right? Every time, more money for development, an expanded um, World Cup. But at the end of the day, the tournament, the thing that we all love, the thing that he said was the best ever, that group stage, will never be repeated thanks to this. Um, 48 teams, 35 days a minimum, Martin. I mean, it's... it's this risk is going to be really boring as well, isn't it? I mean, all these 
games that are just kind of being played for the sake of being played. Where's the? There's not going to be much of a thrill. And the best thing about this World Cup for me on a, on the field has been those double headers. They've they've just been mad. Um, the last set of group games, um, name your group, has just been absolutely insane and created some really good headlines and great TV moments. Well, I suppose that's the reason why they wanted. To, you know, you can say that's the reason why they wanted to keep the groups of four. Is that if you have a group of three, then you don't have a double header. You have one match and then one team who's not playing in that group and that sort of raises the risk of collusion between the two teams greatly so I can understand why that's been seen as a as a problem um so I I, I, don't, I think there's no there is no elegant solution to this I think it's um, I can um, you can go back to 32 and say I was wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> who, who might this help most I'm trying to think of the nationalities of uh Three of the top people at FIFA: Swiss, Scottish, Swedish. Oh yeah, well, you think this is the only way that they can get, they can be sure that that country's qualified? They yeah, might get a chance to watch them in twenty twenty six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the other thing I was going to say: the TV deals that have been done for twenty twenty six. I mean, I presume they've been done with forty eight teams. A lot of them. I don't. I think the ones with Fox and in sport were actually done before that decision was taken. They um, were. Yeah. So, but for the other ones, I guess they, they, they you know, they've been sold on the, on a 48-team tournament. So, you, FIFA are not going to break that, are they? Because it'll, it'll cost them money. There is one nationality I didn't mention, Senegal, one of the most senior people at FIFA, Fatma Samora, the Secretary General, but we never actually hear from her. We haven't, we haven't seen her... Um very visibly, certainly as a member of the press corps. We have seen her tweeting, I suppose. I mean, that's been my kind of, that'll be my recollection of her period in office, sort of live tweeting football matches from all over the world, be it the boys under 17 World Cup, the, the men's World Cup, uh, a regional tournament. You, she, she has become one of the most prolific live tweeters of live football internationally that I can think of. I did see a clip of her briefly being filmed uh, by a journalist last week being asked about the death of the Filipino worker at the the, the training base where Saudi Arabia were and um, yeah she refused to comment and that was it. Well that's the situation at the World Cup and some other stories that have been around and we're back to the ban on Russia in international sports of course Russia banned from completing qualifying for this World Cup and we had in the summer Russian and Belarusian players banned from competing in tennis tournaments in Britain, including Wimbledon. And there has now been a consequence with the Lawn Tennis Association fined $1 million by the ATP. And there's a further threat of sanctions as well, isn't there? Yeah, the ATP threatened to kick um, the Lawn Tennis Association out of the tour. Um, the WTA have already done that as well. And I think Wimbledon are looking like um, the signals coming from there is that they're going to they'll sort of lift the ban on the Russians and the Belarusians just because the rest of tennis basically hasn't done the, hasn't done the, um, the same and that they've, they've let them go ahead and there haven't been, there hasn't been misbehavior by Russian players and there's no sort of, you know, those pro-war Z signs. So I think they're going to have to do it. The other interesting thing last week was the the IOC um, taking 
what is very clearly, um, although they tried to sort, I think, disguise it, but it is very clearly the first steps towards reintroducing um, Russians and to allow them to take part as neutrals in the Paris Olympics. Yeah, and you know, it's not surprising. This is exactly as you would imagine the IOC would behave because they always take a hard line when there's no event. So it was very easy to ban Russia when there is nothing really at stake. They were very strong, if you remember, when the war um, was, was started, when the invasion started. And now we come to the business end of qualifying for the Olympics. And guess what? Well, you know, it's probably time to reintegrate Russian athletes. And it might be. But again, let's just recall how they've operated here. It's never when there's a squeeze on the IOC would they push and punish Russia. It's normally around these bits when, when it's kind of easy to... Yeah, exactly. And it's only because, I think, the Olympic qualifiers are due to start um, next year that they sort of think, oh, God, if the Russians can't take part in the Olympic qualifiers, and uh, some of them, then they're not going to be able to qualify for Paris and then uh, we're, in a, we're in a tricky position here. But some of the sort of justifications I thought was pretty bad. Like one of the justifications was that the, the initial recommendation for a ban from international competition was for the protection of the athletes involved, which I thought, I mean, you know, let's, and that, that, that threat no longer exists. I mean, I thought that was pretty lame. And then using sort of um, this thing about, oh, you know, politics shouldn't interfere with sport whatsoever. I mean, if you could, you could use that argument for allowing apartheid South Africa to have been in the Olympics, absolutely nonsense. Yeah, there's that potential of Russian athletes winning medals being celebrated in the heart of Paris in less than two years. As things stand, Russia's war on Ukraine does continue and certainly no sign of a complete Russian withdrawal. No, and also, just taking the war, um, putting the war to one side, Russia's behaviour in sports has not changed at all. Do you remember the case of the figure skater, Valieva, the 15-year-old, there was supposed to be a doping investigation. And what did the Russians do? They did it secretly, have refused to provide any of the details of that investigation, even to WADA, and have said it's been handled. And it's again, this Russia kind of leading the rest of the sporting world a merry dance, and then end up getting reintegrated at every turn. We've kind of done six or seven of these um, stories over the last decade or so, and it's always Russia, and they always kind of get their way in the end. Yeah, the IOC, I mean, notorious for avoiding any sort of um strong negative stance towards somebody like Russia. I mean it has been like that for, for years and years and years. And they're also another thing the IOC is always very reluctant to do is actually take a disciplinary action against its members. And we something we've flagged up a, a few times is is Pat Hickey, the Irish IOC member who was arrested in Rio naked um by the police, memorably naked, and was the um was charged with um, ticket offences. He's been on bail ever since. He's been under investigation by the IOC Ethics Commission for six years. And he's suddenly resigned, said he's not going to be an IOC member anymore. And that means that the Ethics Commission, they they, sort, they can't do anything now, do they? So that, that they're off the hook. Yeah, the least, the least transparent ethics process, I think, you know, if you can even compare with like FIFA and UEFA, we give... Uh, a kicking on on um, disciplinary matters quite regularly. The IOCs is just completely opaque. Uh, we get hardly any window. And Pat Hickey wouldn't be the first of these members who'd faced years-long secret 
kind of internal disciplinary processes and and leave before before there's any conclusion i, I can't think of a, a senior figure there that has gone through a full investigation and the uh, outcome has been public as we've finish up this week's episode some news on one of the ongoing significant issues in the world of sport transgender policies and this one from the united states yeah very interesting this um obviously a a very difficult subject for lots of sports bodies but u.s rowing i think have come up with the most sort of bizarre um policy which i can i can imagine so for their domestic events you anyone any rower who um identifies as as female um can row in the in the in the women's events, anyone who identifies as male can run the men's events. But for the mixed gender events, if you if you you have to be female at birth to take to take part in the uh, as a woman, so it just makes no sense to me. And lots of campaigners have said, well, actually, well, this looks like it's protecting males, uh, and it's not protecting women at all. Uh, a very very strange policy. But really strange, Martin. So can you? Just clarify something, I guess, with this. If, if, if what you've said is the policy here, would the representative in the in the mixed rowing race have to compete under a different gender in the different disciplines? So they'd be considered a, a woman in the women's race, but then would have to be a man rec- recognised a man in the men's race in order to compete. Correct. Very strange indeed. One will be keeping an eye on on Sport Unlocked and that about brings an end to this week's episode from the World Cup in Qatar for myself, Rob Harris, Tarek Panja and Martin Ziegler. You can watch messages at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, goodbye.